this time on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, we thought we'd try something different. Not that we don't do that every episode. We're always trying crazy shit. First, let's say hello. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. Hello. Hello. And we talk a lot about the blues when we're not doing this podcast. A lot more than people might think based on how many episodes about the blues we've actually done. That's true, but we've spoken about the blues in almost every episode because it seems as if we're finding these musicians in the punk realm and in the very wild alternative realm all being influenced by the blues and wanting to make their own kind of blues, which sort of in essence made them bend the blues. So we thought we could do a thing we're calling Profiles of the Blues, and then the question was where to start and what to do. Today, we're going to do two profiles, two people who in no uncertain terms are among the greatest ever to sing the blues. First, the Empress of the Blues herself, Bessie Smith. We've talked about her before, and because of our conversations, I sense that you were getting into her more than you were before and learning more about her and her music. Over the past couple of weeks, Ray, I have learned so much about Bessie Smith and listened to her music a lot, including some time with my son, and there's so much I'm excited to talk about, but we cannot... But... But... We cannot forget that in the second part of this episode, we're going to be talking about somebody who is so, so important in the evolution of rock and roll as well, Howlin' Wolf. And that is going to be so much fun. He is a monster. He's a walking, breathing monster in the time when the blues had a baby and they named it rock and roll. You know, Muddy sings about that. Mm -hmm. Alan Wolf, there he is, delivering the baby. <laughs> and some stuff I learned about him is really mind-blowing, and I can't wait to get into talking about him as well in the second part of this fun episode as we profile some of these great blues artists. Often in rock and roll history, we have found that tragedy walks hand-in-hand hand with victory. Sometimes the story starts at the end. A car crash. Bessie Smith, injured badly, has to go to the black hospital, but it's too far away. If only she could have been taken care of at the white hospital. She might have lived, but she dies at what? 43? In 1937. Yes, there is a lot of talk about that story and whether she was denied by the White Hospital and whether she would have uh, survived had she gone That's to the conjecture. White Hospital. That and is that conjecture. Is, it is conjecture because in some of the stuff I read that NPR has published about Bessie Smith, they said that all of the limo drivers knew you do not under any circumstances even consider taking a person of color to a white hospital under any circumstances. And the truck driver who called the 911 call originally called a white ambulance as well as a black ambulance because he did not know the color of the person in the car. Right. But he knew right. the car was messed up. And I guess Bessie was uh, lying in the middle of the road with her arms severed. And it was just a gnarly scene. It was a gruesome scene uh, in Clarksdale, Mississippi, right? Which is kind of like the heartland of the blues. She dies from these injuries. And do you really want to get into the whole grisly scene at the accident? Because it's terrible. Mm -mm. And it's like he tries to get around a truck and that happens. And the arm gets injured and another car comes along and there's a second collision. It's just a horrible story. And the implied effect of uh, uh, divided South in those days really just underlines the possibility that maybe she might have lived. You mentioned NPR, and I love this section of an essay about Bessie Smith written by Gwen Tompkins. She was big and brown and built high off the ground. A hell of a woman, men called her, but most women said she was rough. And while there were other blues singers in the first half of the 20th century, some who shared her surname, none could be mistaken for Bessie Smith. Yeah, that drug show is evil. 
Clara or Trixie or Ruby or Laura. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, copycats, I guess. Or yeah. There was a Mamie Smith who was legit, but there were a lot of copycats, too. Yeah. I actually read that article as well. There was some great information in some of those NPR pieces. And yeah. it just adds to her character and her persona because she was really the first African-American superstar, if you think about it. She was. It. Oh, yes. And I thought of this because I went and looked about the uh, how their company evolved, Columbia Records. As Columbia Records was evolving from a company that made both players and uh, the discs, first cylinders and then flat discs, she was one of the artists that helped to establish them, and she was certainly the biggest first african-american to make the impact and to help a company like columbia to get its basis help it to grow from its earliest days all through the 20s and i just wanted to mention that too yeah they were actually struggling with disc sales at that time that they signed bessie smith and then she recorded downhearted blues and gulf coast blues and downhearted blues alone sold 780,000 copies in 1923 Things like that and info like that sent me on a path to look for who somebody was in a lot of these recordings. Maybe later we'll have some fun with some favorites, and you'll find that most of mine involve the big band, the larger band stuff, the songs that were on the Empress of the Blues collection from Columbia. But I went looking for the man who's that solo pianist playing along with her, and it turns out I think it's Clarence Williams who definitely was on those two. And I think he was on a lot of her other records and really was her guy. When you listen to the playing on a lot of the records where it's just her and piano, it's his feel. Now, I also found a guy named Buck Washington who played with her and Louis Armstrong at different times, but that was in the 1930s. So I wanted to make sure we got Clarence Williams' name into this because I think it's important. At that time, she was also married to John Jack Gee, or G, who she met in Philadelphia when she was working, and he never got into her lifestyle, and they split up, and even though they never formally right. divorced, they were split up. But there was also uh, rumors later on, or uh, stories later on, that John and Clarence actually took some of Bessie's money and spent it on their own luxuries. But again, who knows? Well, hold, on, hold on a second. Well, that on top of the news of who he is has now got my head spinning here. And this is what happens sometimes when we start doing this podcast, right? We start finding out all this information. You find out shit. I find out shit. And we put it together. It's like, what? Exactly. That's where that saying came from. I swear yep. to God, that's where it came from. Totally. For real. After her marriage fell apart, she found Richard Morgan, who was more amenable to her way of life and all that. And he was the guy behind the wheel when the crash happened out there on Highway 61. And we lost Beth. Smith because of the accident that happened. Now, the connection back to Philadelphia and Arts Cafe, which I have had the hardest time getting a handle on where Arts Cafe was in Philadelphia, and I'm getting closer. I know I'm going to get, I'm going to send an email to Mr. Perkins at WRTI. Maybe he knows the exact location, because this is what I've just came up with shortly before we started rolling tape. There was a birdcage lounge which was in North Philly on Ridge Avenue, okay? The writer talks about a chance encounter with Charlie Parker there, or his uncle had that, and it even shows where it is, and it definitely looks like Philadelphia in the 50s, right? And it shows the corner kind of now. Not much has changed, but it's right there, and it's like uh, it's called the Ridge Cotton Club is the other one. That's the other one. And that opened in 47. 
So this is, I think, the stretch of Ridge Avenue where they found Bessie Smith when they got her back into the swing of things. If you remember, she had kind of fallen a little bit out of favor, and they found her in Philadelphia. But this isn't even the thing that I'm excited to tell you about that I learned. And I guess it has something to do with her roots related to working in Philadelphia and being at Arts Cafe. Where do you think that Bessie Smith who died in Clarksdale, Mississippi, born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Where do you think that she might be buried? She's buried somewhere in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I don't know exactly Oh, where. man, I thought, I, you know, I yeah. want to tell you right now. Because I found she out She is that... buried in the Mount Lawn Cemetery in Sharon Hill, Delaware County. And so it hit me when I heard this. It was like, all this time, Bessie's been here? And I didn't know that. I thought that she was buried down south back home. And maybe something hit in my head Philadelphia at one point, but I probably thought Philadelphia, Mississippi, our sister city. But I even have the section and the lot number right here. We're going. We'll go do just you and me stand there talking to Bessie Smith. I can go with that. We could just go one day when we're over at your house. We'll just roll over to the other side of Delco and do this. I'm cool with that. That would be great. That would be a lot of fun. And Janis Joplin and a young lady named Juanita Green who cleaned her house as a child were the two who paid for her gravestone. And you really feel Bessie's influence in Janice's singing and the way she delivered the blues, the way she bent the blues to her own style. Bessie was the empress for a reason. It wasn't just because she sold the most records. She was incredible. We talked about this before, how she came up from nothing. Her parents both died young. Her and her siblings would busk on the streets there in Chattanooga to raise enough money to eat, finding their way. Do you remember the part of the story where her brother Clarence leaves and doesn't tell her he's going because he knows that she'll want to go with him to join the troop? Do you remember that part? Yep. Well, turns out, that troop, when he comes back around and he gets her an audition, is the troop that Ma Rainey is in, and that's how she crosses paths with Ma Rainey. Yeah, she was like 16 years old when she had joined that troop, and at that time, she was super popular in the area for her church singing and for her street singing, right. and, and she never dressed fancy, and she never did it up. She just went out there and laid her heart out to the people, and they threw it's her so a lot beautiful. of money, man. So beautiful. I'm going to say, oh. I want to say this and this is the thing that I've been excited to say because I think that if Bessie Smith at that time were to be able to sing with today's microphones and speakers and soundboards, she would literally melt the fucking faces of the people in the crowd. That's where the term <laughs> melting faces would yes. be because that raw power would just rip through the entire audience. And with that kind of a boost, with the big stacks and her microphones and the power. Forget whole lot of oh, love, right? Oh, <laughs> It would be a crushing of the crowd. It would be amazing. Well, different times, different styles, <laughs> different <laughs> methods of recording. Very crude by today's standards. Oh, yes. Didn't, like, when they record, they just put her mic and the keyboard right there, mic'd up, and they both went into either one mic or two mics into the same line, and that's what it was, one take? However, they managed to get everything to one channel for a long time. 
that's what they did. They took all the mics and they put them in the, the mix, the sound, what with how many little knobs they had, right? And not many, I could tell you that. And sometimes it was a matter of positioning the microphones in the right way to catch a live take. In, in an era where perfection wasn't always strive for, they could still kill a take with somebody creaking a chair or walking through a door. It happened all the time. People would say, ah, stop and start over. And that's why tapes would be reused over and over or the recording lacquers would be tossed. You wanted to get that good take all the way back to Bessie Smith. Wow. But the fact that they were able to, with the crude by today's standards recording techniques, capture both her quality and her emotion. She did what she did without all of that technology. And she made you feel what she felt. And that was her voice directly versus any, you know, boosters or any tweaks or any adjustments. Yeah. It was just her voice and the microphone and the music right there. And boy, do you feel it. So imagine this. It's crude recording. You're Clarence Williams. You're the guy who's at the recorder, right? You're in the room with them or you're behind a plate of glass. Whatever, however it's going at this point. And she lets loose with some of this stuff. Can you imagine the energy in the room first, but second, the energy on that tape after it's played back? Wow. Or the lacquer. In the earliest days, they recorded straight the lacquer. So mistakes could really add up. You know, we have friends who are in the vinyl business and know vinyl history and I'll bet you they would come on the podcast. In one case, come on the podcast again. Let's get them on. Well, we'll call Chris Schwartz. Perfect. <laughs> we get back to Bessie Smith because she is the Empress of the Blues Absolutely. after all. And her catalog, just the Columbia singles alone, are <laughs> just mind-blowing, dude. And... Some of the subject matter is, even today, would make a few people blush, I'd say. You know, uh, when she sings, give me a pig foot and a bottle of beer, mm. she also wants the man to come, you know, suckle that pig foot and drink the beer with her. She is not just quite demure flower sitting in the corner. And as we noted earlier and in previous episodes, part of her issue in her marriage with her husband before she met Richard Morgan was that she was bisexual and she liked to have a woman to suckle the pig foot and have a beer with too. She became a groundbreaking musician and was rediscovered by a lot of people who were getting into the roots of American music and the blues. And a lot of her songs, some of my favorite redos, came out in the 70s, I would say, especially David Bromberg's version of Send Me to the Electric Chair, which still gets played whenever the big band hits the road. Judge, judge, good kind judge. Send me to the electric chair. Mr. John, John, him and John. I want to get out of here. I, I want to take a joint in to the devil down below. I sliced up my sweet patootie. I gotta read just what I saw. So, John, John. And you mentioned it earlier, she did what a lot of artists did in the early days of recording. They just recorded and recorded and recorded and then cut it in half, right, on Empty Bed Blues, another one where she puts it all on the line. sea diver with a stroke that can't go wrong he's a deep ha! sea diver with a stroke that can't go wrong he can touch the bottom and his wind holds out so long hmm that ain't raunchy What's at she all about? 
<laughs> Seriously, those lyrics back in those days were raunchy, very vaudevillian blues, but they were yes. a smart raunch, if that but makes sense. That's part of what she learned from Ma Rainey, because she was in Ma Rainey's troupe watching from the back line, seeing how people reacted to all that. A lot of it was already tested, like what the limits were. And then she'd walk over the line and push her own way. And uh, the songs were the vehicle for that. She had so much fun performing some of the songs because she could really like turn and pop the shoulder and sing over it and give the vivacious looks mm -hmm. and, and create the energy in person. The recording part. In those days, as we've talked about, that even years later, it would still be crewed by any measure when Robert Johnson would do his limited recordings. And her stuff was all recorded before Johnson ever got in front of a microphone, right? That is true. And as we find out when we talk about Howlin' Wolf, he played with Robert Johnson at some point where he sang and Johnson played the guitar. So these people all crossed paths and interacted and played together on stages at these juke joints and these small get-togethers on the plantations throughout that area. For timing context, realize we've talked about the Four Kings in New Orleans at that time, and uh, she actually recorded with Louis Armstrong. Smith did and he's one of those people and I think you also have to consider that like people like Al Jolson and Rudy Valley and people like that were also popular artists so Jolson even put on blackface he wanted to be Louis Armstrong so bad you know what I mean but the way I look at it you know what was going on here was good old-fashioned American commerce built off of art and as an artist she was one of the finest in her era. She had sass. She had style. She had something to say. And in a way that hadn't really been popular to this level in America at that point 100 years ago. Think about it. She had gospel in her background from her churches. Right. Then with Ma Rainey, she became vaudevillian and jazz influenced. And then it rolled right on into the blues. And then in the 30s, the blues were fading out. So she was rolling back into the jazz groove when her life was tragically cut short. She could do it all and was by far one of the greatest of the vocalists in that whole era. In the article I read, her blue singing was the bluest of them all, but she could also sing about the joys of sex drinking, throwing away an old lover and replacing him with a younger stud and make you feel it the way she does. Another example, that first single being treated badly by a lover. So many people could relate to that. The backwater blues, her terrifying experience of a flood. When it rains five days in the skies turn dark and When it rained five days and the skies turned dark as night Then trouble taking place in the lowlands at night just really relatable and when you can sing and relate to the people who you're singing to and they can feel exactly what you're feeling from their own experience it gives them an even greater connection with that artist and it increases their star power at a whole new level exponentially and you underline everything you just said about bessie smith by looking at her induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Anita Baker, somebody who definitely fits the profile of what we're talking about here. You talk about HBO doing a movie called Bessie with the Queen Latifah portraying the woman. And this is the kind of inspiration, cross-generational, 
that we're talking about here. Hey, uh, we had a crazy text conversation the other day about doing like a shotgun five favorites on both of these artists that we're profiling on this episode. Are you in a good steed to do that? You know, after you asked the question about doing a five favorite after the end of these, I thought about it for a little bit and I was like, yes, I can do it. And having been able to listen to as much of their music as we've gotten to over the last couple of weeks, it didn't make it easy. It made it fun and challenging. Yeah. But I'm excited to share my five faves because we get to throw them in here. And Vegas says no chance on the spontaneity. Are we even no. considering a no. line? Go pack sand, fellas. I'll tell you what, we're not even going to do trading back and forth. Mm-hmm. So we'll just do this real quick. I'll start with my five fave Bessie Smith songs. First, at number five, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. Once I lived a life of a millionaire in my money I Soulful. So soulful. Number four, those St. Louis blues with Satchmo blowing. Yeah. Number three, it's one of my personal favorite songs of liberation. Taint nobody's business if I do. tell the world fuck off uh downhearted blues her first record and her first number one on the pop chart which is a significant thing when she debuted back in the days number one i mentioned it already judge judge david romberg uh loved this song and so do i send me to the electric chair my number one five faves on bessie smith Five favorites start with, and nobody knows you when you're down and out. Almost made it. But number five, downhearted blues. Everybody can relate to it. Number four, give me a pig foot and a bottle of beer. You can Number three, Empty Bed Blues Parts 1 and 2. Number two, St. Louis Blues with Satchmo. And number one, Devil's Gonna Get You.
All right, we had two in common, even if Vegas isn't paying. Not bad, not bad, not bad. And with her library of over 150 Columbia songs, it's surprising almost that we got two. And in 1920s dollars, you're talking about the music of the Roaring Twenties when people had money and were spending it. Yep. Music was growing in the American culture in every way. And she was right there in the middle of it. The Empress of the Blues, our first half of this week's Profiles of the Blues, Bessie Smith. Ray, are you ready to take a break and recharge after talking about Bessie Smith? I think we should visit Crooked Eye and then we'll come back and howl at the moon with that wolf. Howl at the wolf. Ah, the taste of Crooked Eye. It's like coming home for the holidays, man. And by the way, it'll be the holidays before you know it, Marcus. Getting into the fall season, and so the brews change, and some different things appear on the board. Hey, there's a lot going on, and as always, the best way to find out what's happening at the brewery location in Hapro is on their Facebook. But one thing you know is there's the Blues Jam every Wednesday night hosted by the Crooked Soul Band. And I've been noticing a lot of new names and a lot of new acts appearing recently at Crooked Eye. So go in and see who's playing this weekend. And don't forget, if you're in Delco, Jamie's House of Music is a place where you can get Crooked Eye beers as well. Fresh brews, PA spirits, and wine, as well as all the fun of the music at both Jamie's House of Music and at the brewery location in Hatboro. Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Refreshed, I still got a half a pint of Crooked Eye here, but I'm ready to roll on our second half of Profiles of the Blues. A man who'd come along years later and take a completely different path, but also have some similarities in his life, becomes part of the Chess Records family, creates a competition amongst the the people who were out there at the time for his services, so to speak. Talking about Chester Burnett, I'm talking about Helen Wolfe. And boy, what a unique human being he was, and what an impact on rock and roll he had. Brian Jones got to introduce him on his only American TV appearance. Right? I mean, this guy seriously was the guy, I think, that so many went to because of that howl, because of that voice. And his voice was actually really scratchy because he had tonsillitis so much as a child living in the Delta. And they didn't have good medical care back then with the antibiotics and being able to access them in the Delta. So eventually it took a toll on his vocal cords. I did not know that. Yes, been learning a lot. And the Delta is a fascinating region that we should definitely just talk about that region at some point because it goes from Memphis to Vicksburg and then between the Yazoo and the Mississippi Rivers. And Yazoo is Choctaw for uh, Valley of the Dead or Mountain of the Dead or River of the Dead. And Memphis is the Egyptian city of the dead. And for the longest time in the Mississippi Delta region, malaria and yellow fever and mosquito sicknesses ran rampant because of the marshy areas and the floods from the rivers and all of that. Almost as much as racism, it's a reason why a lot of people left. True, true, true. But he started in the Delta. He came from common stock, just regular folks working the land, a lot of farmers in his family, right, early on. Oh, yeah, they were all sharecroppers. Making their way, just trying to make a mark in the world. And he jumped right in there. He's a big guy. You know, I mean, when you see pictures of him later as a man, uh, you can tell he was always a big guy. But they were living a tough life. At 13, when he was reunited with his father after being on his own for a little while, he Mm -hmm. stood next to his father, and he was so big, people thought he and his father were twins or brothers. (laughs) I saw that somewhere. I'm like, whoa. That's that's hitting puberty quickly. I'll tell you one of the things about Chester, though. Because he was such a big fella, nobody wanted to fuck with him or piss him off. I could tell you that. And I think that was true from a young age because he was a fair man. He was a hardworking man. 
and he would do things right by you. One of the things that struck me in the story of Hal and Wolf that I've read through the years, we saw in that documentary we both watched, I was reading about it before I watched the documentary, and it reminded me that not only did he give you work as a musician, he paid you well, he took care of you. In his case, he did something that was unheard of in those days by providing health care and stuff like that, other benefits to his musicians that he hired. And he had unemployment insurance for his musicians as well for when they aren't on tour or for when they can't go out on the road or they can't work. First, the guy was a monster on stage. He could sing and play and create all this energy. He could rock. He could get down low in the early days, too. He started as more of a country blues guy coming from Mississippi. And then on top of that, he'd pay you well and he'd take care of you. So this became a coveted gig in the blues community if you got hired in Howlin' Wolf's band, right? Hubert Sumlin didn't want to leave his band, but I know he did at some point. But he really loved Howlin' Wolf, and they had a special bond. And if you look at some of the YouTube videos, you can actually see that connection that he had with his band musically. There's a lot of video of him playing live. Kind of like me and my gang are over here kind of thing. And you even <laughs> see it when... Hubert's older and he's sitting there with the guitar on the couch and he's thinking about those days. The look in his eye, the smile in his face, thinking about those days on the road or in a studio and the issue over his employment by Wolf or by Muddy did become a problem at one point and I, I, I can't say that I blame Chester for feeling the way he felt because he was paying Hubert well, taking good care of him and, all, and his family and everything everything like that and he left for a better deal to play with muddy it got reversed however it went down the movie cadillac records brings a firearm into the equation to reinforce the point which was he was my guy and you stole him and i want him back and really it's hubert's hubris a little bit i mean he was really great player and you've oh. you've heard especially you put him in the studio on those london hell and wolf sessions with all the best players of that day, of the 70s, you know, playing around them and him playing with them. It's just fantastic stuff. Still then, but you can see the fire is still in his eyes when he thinks about playing all these great songs all over the world or recording them with Hal and Wolf. And he went back and never, never thought about it again, I suppose. You know, but, uh, just they were connected forever and him in the middle of those Howlin' Wolf sessions, I think, made it special because Clapton wanted to play with him. You know, Winwood wanted to jam with him. They all saw him for what he was, a master at his craft. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure that that's one of those lifetime events that every one of those guys ranks up near the top of their lifetime as far as musical moments goes. Absolutely. Bet on it. Got a note from the research department. They said, Marcus, that TV show you quickly referenced with Brian Jones was Shindig on the ABC TV network. I was in Chicago a little while ago, and I came across this restaurant. I went in, and I found a chap singing the blues. I thought he was fantastic, so I booked him. And, uh, it, turned, He's on. and it turned out to be somebody you know about, the, uh, in fact, he's quite famous, isn't he, in Britain? Yes, well, he was the first one that recorded Little Red Rooster. Was he? Yes. When did you... Tell us something about him, Brian. Well, when we first started playing together, we started playing because we wanted to play rhythm and blues, and Howling Wolf was one of our greatest idols, and it's a great pleasure to find he's been booked on this show tonight. It really is a pleasure. Thanks to Howling Jack Wolf. So I think it's about time you shut up and we had Howling Wolf on stage. Yeah, I agree. Let's get him on. Howling Wolf! Shindig. Yeah. The whole premise was it was hip and it was groovy 
and it was now, and sometimes they were partying at the beach and sometimes they're partying at the beach house and sometimes they're partying up in, you know, the canyon or whatever. But it was always like, you know, hip and... It was MTV Spring Break before MTV Spring Break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those all those beach movies in the 60s yeah. were really the, the premise. The Beaver Cleaver Spring Break. <laughs> they're the predecessors, Marcus. Let's get it right. Well, as a guy who created what he created and helped to create the songs and give life to songs that even the others wrote like he played a lot of willie dixon songs and he breathed life into these songs and made them legends so that the british kids that were getting into american blues would hear them and make them want to be part of their albums and part of their repertoire and and part of the basis of what they were building on Zeppelin certainly a, a big one, you know, and Willie certainly got checks from them for the work that he did. In his case, all he ever really wanted was what he earned. In Cadillac Records, the sentiment is best expressed by the one scene after he goes through this bidding war. Apparently, he had recorded at the studio that was the predecessor to Sun Studios. It was Sam's studio, but it wasn't called Sun yet. And then there was a bit of a bidding war between a few of the labels that wanted to release the records. And I remember the scene after he signs a deal with Chess, he comes out to the street and he gets in this shit-ass truck. It's, I mean, it's rusty and beat up. Now, in real life, in his daughters in the in the uh, documentary say that he always drove a station wagon. But maybe that was later. I don't know. But he's in this uh, beat-up truck, and, and Leonard Chess had a way of uh, buying Cadillacs for all his new stars. And he told me to want a Cadillac. He just take his money for work, the work he's done. Thank you very much. And it was his statement to Muddy and to Willie and the other guys who were already in the Chess family that they were basically getting played by accepting the Cadillacs and stuff like that. It was a, an interesting part of the movie, the way the movie mm -hmm. flowed. But what it did was showed what a character he was and how strong he was as, as a persona. You know, being Alan Wolf wasn't just his name. It was who he was. The whole story behind his name is pretty cool, you know. The fact that he was born of the light of a comet, Halley's Comet was overhead the night he was born or right around that time. His uh, grandpa or his uncle used to uh, tease him about the wolf going to get him because he had these yeah. big, strong hands. And when he would hold the little chickens, he didn't realize it, but he would squeeze them so tight he would choke them out. And so his relative or his, his grandpa would be like, oh, the wolf's going to get you out. Get you. And so, uh, you know, he'd mess with him as a little kid like that. And it's wild. And I think that's when he was at his uh, uncle's house because his mom sent him away when he was like six years old. He went to live with his uncle. And then when he was 13 is when he jumped the smokestack lightning to the Delta region to find his dad. One of the things that I did not know about Chester Burnett is that he was once a member of the U.S. Army's Buffalo Soldiers Unit. I did not know that. I, did I learned not that know along that the either. way. Wow. The stuff you learn when you really look. And he was one of the last groups that was a member of that unit. That's wild. We mentioned Sam Phillips and what later became Sun Studios, which is where Helen Wolf recorded his first sides. Here's a rock and roll intersection. Can you guess who the producer was on those first couple songs? I have no idea. I did not look. Mr. Rocket, 88 himself, really? Ike Turner. Ike Turner did the first couple of songs? He did uh, Moaning at Midnight and How Many More Years. He was in the studio behind the controls working the magic.
got his hands in so much in the history of rock and roll you were all excited after you saw the uh, Hallow wolf story documentary and in there his daughters barbara marks and betty kelly talk about their dad in a way that i never ever saw anyone talk about Hallow wolf before they really loved their dad a lot mm-hmm. and he took really good care of those that were close to him in his circle. A gentle giant, perhaps? Yes. Like a big guy who was like a buggy bear. Mm-hmm. But he also had a really dark side, too. Yeah, like that scene where he takes Hubert Sumlin back and like, you do it again, I'll kill you, man. I'm like, what? Like when he was uh, playing on the uh, plantation circuit, he had messed with a woman because he was a ladies' man. And must have been the before dude, that Yeah, this was way before in the early days when he was finding himself. And the dude beat up the woman that he was with. So he went and he hit the dude in the head with a hoe and took half his head off. And... He was at a juke joint, and everybody was pretty much stomping on a guy who was dead on the floor already. Like, crazy stuff that happened in the juke joint. I didn't joint. see any of that. It was in the Moaning, wow. at, it was in a Moaning at Midnight uh, Howlin' Wolf uh, biography, which is written by James Segrist and uh, Mark Hoffman. It's Moaning at Midnight, The Life and Times of Howlin' Wolf. and We will never know. The, half the shit that happened in this country, good, the bad, the ugly, and the downright, oh, my God, stuff that has happened in our country's history. We're only talking about one slice of rock and roll, and we find stuff like this or similar or mm-hmm. sim- stuff that makes us go, what? For some reason beyond just though we didn't know that mm-hmm. all the time. And it's the nature of what life was. Yeah. And I'm glad we don't live then. I like talking about it. It's interesting, the music stuff and the yeah. cultural influence is all interesting, but I'm glad we didn't live that. Me too. It sounds like not a very uh, chill time Fun to time. live. And the juke Yeah, it was but, the Roaring Twenties, you know? Yeah. It's like at the same time, it was the Roaring Twenties. You're right. And not only, you know, in the rural juke joint areas was there a lot of violence, in the poor Italian and Irish ghettos in the cities, yeah. it was equally as bad. And if you don't believe me, just read a book like The Alienist by Caleb Carr. You can really get a feel for what life was like for the poor whites in America, the Irish, the Italian the immigrants that were just coming over from Europe during that time. You had a lot of the Russians via like... In the, waves. Uh, yeah, in yeah. waves. And that was like the uh, Fiddler on the Roof time when people were leaving Russia as well. So there was a lot of crazy going on and America had a really nice open-door policy towards immigrants. So people, being people, find a way to live. They find a way to get along. They find a way to learn about each other. It's how things become less ghettoized, you know? Hey, man, I grew up in a white ghetto. I know it. And it was a nice neighborhood. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people get cordoned off in their own little spaces and don't get to know each other. How can you get to know each other? That was changing at the same time as all this other stuff we've been talking about with, you know, Howlin' Wolf and getting into meeting all these people. I mean, he was influenced by the people we were just talking about, talking about Bessie Smith, especially uh, Ma Rainey was uh, cited, the Mississippi Sheiks, who we've talked about before, and Blind Lemon Jefferson, uh, the king of Texas, man. You know, these guys, Blind Blake, Tommy Johnson, all people who influenced Helen Wolf. After his time with Charlie Patton, he learned from people like Dick Bankston, Jim Holloway, Long Nathan Scott taught him some chords, Nathan Bear Taylor taught him how to pick notes. So he learned from a lot of the people in the area at that time. And there was a little cafe called the Holly Ridge Store, which is is kind of a landmark in the blues because Albert King, B.B. King, Little Milton Campbell, Eddie Taylor mm-hmm. were all born within 25 miles of that place, and they all played it. There's something in the water, Mama. That's all I'm saying. Did you know this? Charlie Patton survived an ear-to-ear throat cut from a fight at a juke joint. I did not know that, but and- I do know that meeting Charlie Patton meant a whole lot to young Chester Burnett. The influence.
about, you know, Chester saw in his family line that they might be part Choctaw, I think you said, was the tribe. Yeah. And I think Charlie was part Choctaw. I know he was part Native American from one of the tribes where he was from. To see someone who looks like you but sounds very different and to get someone else to identify with, a traveling musician, maybe that's partly where he got the idea to roam when it came time. The successful musicians were the ones who did jump on the trains and ride the highways to the different towns in the Delta and play all the uh, plantations and the juke joints and the cafes that they were allowed to play at because that's how they built the following. And Charlie Patton taught Wolf to play uh, standard tuning and open G, which is Spanish tuning, as well as how to be a showman. Patton was a showman. Twirling his guitar and doing crazy things on stage, just a showman. And this is the atmosphere he came up in. The songs, which is what it really ultimately is all about, well, there were a lot of them. And a lot of them passed hands from generation to generation right there at Chess Records. A lot of them came from Willie Dixon, the mind of Willie Dixon. Thinking of songs like Backdoor Man, right? It came huge for the doors later. Spoonful. So many people played that. Cream made it massive. I don't think you can list real quick the number of people who performed Little Red Rooster or Red Rooster, whatever you want to call it. And the basis for rock and roll from just from I Ain't Superstitious and Killing Floor alone. Wang Dang Doodle, Going Down Slow. These are all songs that made such an impact with young British rockers. And these guys made them their own, put them into their band's repertoires, learned them from the records, and the records were chess records. They could get them over there. You know how we were talking on uh, the Clash episode, how we had to scramble to find those first couple Clash and Sex Pistols records and all the EPs and all that shit? Well, they were doing the same thing in the shops over in in UK trying to find uh, the records. That's how... uh, Kids came together. That's how Keith and Mick end up on a platform in Dartford, Kent, going, hey, what's that? Oh, it's a Muddy Waters record. You know, that kind of shit. This is the music. This is the glue. And Helen Wolf was so important to all of that. And you said something about his daughters. You know, they loved him. The way they talked about him and the way they talked about dad and him and mom, the way he loved Lily and da 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 da. It was all so sweet. And you can tell it was like the truth. You know, he really was the guy in the horn room glasses and the pressed white shirt with the short sleeves, you know, and, mm-hmm. the, and the tie and the dad pants and shoes. He really was dad. And he projected that. Because that's who he was. And the world just saw it as the wolf. He wasn't in like the slick dressing and all that. He just wanted to get up there and rock, play the blues, tell the truth, and then get the money and get paid go home. He did all of that, and in his later years, he learned how to read and write. I think he got his GED in his 50s. He did. So he was always learning because if you notice, he didn't write his own songs because he couldn't write. And he built his vocal style pushing the plow horse because he was so big and strong. He would push the plow horse and sing the whole day and just make up new songs all day long. And Creating that cadence, stuck. the yep. things that was the basis for what he would do. Finding his voice in nature and in labor. Oh, yeah. Right. Just fantastic. Yep. His whole story really was. That's why the end is really sad. He had complications from a kidney surgery and he he wasn't that old, just 65 and uh, slipped in a coma and died a few days later. And he was gone. I remember when I was a kid, I just heard about Helen Wolf and he was dead. I was so pissed off. I was like, wait a minute. I knew. Some of these other guys, I had already heard a lot more of their records. I was just discovering him, and he died. It pissed me off, man. One of those great losses felt by so many in rock and roll. I was too young to really understand his loss at the time, 
And I am sad that he did not live into the 80s and 90s and continue to play through those decades with some of his partners and some of his Mm -hmm. friends over the decades because it would have been a treat. And I think had he survived, I think we would have seen a bigger blues resurgence because of his charisma and his power. And the songs that he lent to the popular songbook that were made more popular by others. Just so you don't think everything I said about Hallam Wolf dying was negative, what it did was it propelled me to go see the old blues guys while they were still alive. And I did. I went and saw as many as I could and met a few of them. I saw Willie Dixon. I saw Muddy Waters. I went to see John Lee Hooker and met him. I told you about that before. Just going and seeing them became important. Did you ever get to see Hubert Sumlin play? Uh, I don't think so, because I think I would have remembered. Because just watching him even sit in the chair in the documentary and play, the dude could still play at the time that documentary was filmed like nobody's business, and his notes were so beautiful. The way they did some of that documentary stuff reminded me of nothing but a good time as far as the format of he said, she said, we said. His ex-wife was in there. She was still alive. They were both still alive at the time, and it was coming through, and it was like, oh man he didn't see everything the way he did she did offer some interesting perspective and uh, yes yeah you know his music his persona lives on they put him in the rock and roll hall of fame and uh they, they put him in the grammy hall of fame hell they even gave him his own fucking stamp and he deserved that too they not too many it. musicians get to be on a stamp in this country <laughs> howlin wolf definitely deserves his own stamp And, Ray, I don't know if you know this, but a couple of things I learned along the way include the first two songs that Wolf mastered playing guitar and singing, Blind Lemon Jefferson's Matchbox Blues. Did not know that. How long, babe, how long has that evening train been gone? How long, how long, baby, how long? Then I stood at the station, watched my baby leaving town. Blue and disgusted, nowhere could peace be found. But how long, how long, baby, how long? That famous Howling Wolf Howl, he developed oh. it learning from Jimmy Rogers. Oh, lady, oh, lady, lady, lady. that yodel yeah. into a howl. And for a long time, he claimed that his friend Jimmy Rogers gave him the Howl Wolf name. And then the truth later came out about his grandfather and his uncle and his, his grandmother, too. I think they were all, it was a little bit of a tease at first, you know, Wolf, and the thing you said about the wolf's going to get you. And, <laughs> and I guess it still it gave him nightmares say, into his adulthood. <laughs> well, maybe it just sounded better to say, well, I stole the woo-hoo from that, but he gave me the name. So, you know, maybe it was that kind of a comedy made that became the legend versus how it really went down. But families don't forget. Uh, and, fa- and families are going to call you out if you make a mistake telling the story in public. Let's hope they're not listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're leaving stuff out along the way, but there's so much to talk about with Chester Burnett, the legendary Howlin' Wolf. And there's no way we can get it all into a short podcast. And we'll definitely come back and visit.
visit him in some way or another, but there's just too much to talk about. We should do an episode just on the two real folk blues albums he did. It was another thing that Chess did, and they did one with Sonny Boy Williamson, too. It's one of my favorite blues albums. So yeah, definitely. He did uh, real folk blues and more real folk blues. And then more real folk blues again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you didn't do the last one. <laughs> hey, Marcus, before we go, real quick, let's do that shotgun version of Five Favorites with Hal and Wolf. You're up. Number five, evil is going on. Oh, yes, it is. After the long way from home, can't sleep at night. Grab your telephone. Something just ain't right. That's evil. Number four, moaning at midnight. Number three, don't laugh at me because of Sumlin's guitar work. It is magnificent. I am the wolf, the acoustic version at number two, and number one, the train song, Smokestack Lightning. Well, well, well. I followed you all the way through, and I'm going to try not to lose you on mine. I'm starting out with my number five, Killing Floor. You can't beat that. So much of Zeppelin's build on it, right? I should have quit you. Willie Dixon representing Wang Dang Doodle, which, by the way, he sings his Wang Wang Doodle on at least one version he has of it. The basis of everything that Jeff Beck did with his group after he left the Yardbirds. I Ain't Superstitious at number three. The version of Rockin' Daddy that is on the London Helen Wolf Sessions with Eric Clapton, Hubert Sumlin, Steve Winwood, Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts. Hell of a band, Rockin' Daddy, number one, Pure Wolf, Smokestack Lightning, my number one. Well, the only thing we got in common on the entire one was number one. We're number one. What do you say we go jump a train and head to the Delta? Profiles of the Blues. I like it. I do, too. And look, we got to sit here, hang out, do our thing, and talk about two artists that we both love, Bessie Smith and Howlin' Wolf. Two blues legends whose music is still relevant and important today. If we left anything out of either Queen Bessie or Howlin' Wolf's story, please feel free to email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on social media. It's another great way to interact with us. Facebook, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, at Twitter, at Imbalanced Histo, and, of course, Instagram, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Profiles of the Blues on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is a production of Dark Doc Media. Signing off from our uh, separate studios for now, but soon, I hope, 
we'll all be together. And I hope we're not singing that at Christmas time. As that song goes, soon we'll all be together. It'll be Christmas. We'll be doing the fucking Christmas show together, finally. I know. But hopefully. Hey, folks, I don't care what anybody says. They can yell at me all they want. Keep your distance. Wear a mask. Get a fucking vaccine already, will you? We're trying to get this thing so everybody can get back to more of life. So be cool. And my brother, always good to see you, whether it's uh, via the internet or in person, because we see each other all the time at work. So Yes, we do. Um, and, I, and, and I'm so glad we did this. A, a fun episode. And then next step along this journey that we do. So until the next time I see you in person, online, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to do it for now. Profiles in the Blues. I'm Ray Coop signing off. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.